0: You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Say Yes is an emerging slogan for hospices. What does it mean? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me today is Dr. Perry Fine. Dr. Fine is a professor in the Department of Anesthesiology in the School of Medicine at the University of Utah and Senior Fellow for Medical Leadership for the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. Dr. Fine, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable.
1: Well, thanks so much, and I appreciate being here, Susan.
0: What does say yes mean?
1: Well, in reference to hospice, means that uh, every patient who is eligible for hospice services knows about them, is aware about, of what hospice really is today, and is able to access uh, high-quality hospice services.
0: Is this the same thing as open access?
1: In a sense, although I have to say that the term open access has taken on many different meanings over the course of the years, and so it's probably good to dig into that a little bit and go back uh, into the history so that when we speak of open access or when people talk about about it, we all are really on the same page.
0: Please do. Describe the history of open access.
1: Well, originally uh, the concept was based on a a sense of fairness and really a sense of justice um, with regard to uh, access to hospice so that all dying patients and their families, if they had them, could get the support that they need during the last phase of life. When this is applied to Medicare beneficiaries, who are entitled to Medicare hospice benefit? Um, it really means an elimination of any kind of discrimination against patients who do not fit exactly into a hospice program's values or image of the ideal patient. Meaning that, you know, not everybody is simple and easy either in a social uh, way or, or, or medically speaking. Uh, there have been, over the course of the development of hospice, at least in this country, some arbitrary sort of rules that have been set in place that have kept people from perhaps accessing hospice. Maybe I should give some examples. Please. You know, when the term um, originally, uh, you know, meaning to eliminate restrictions, either social or medical, was applied to, for instance, an issue that, that there had to be a caregiver at home. And a lot of people in this country want to stay in their in their homes uh, and are single or do not have tight social support networks and don't want to leave their homes and, and should be able to uh, complete their lives at home. And so the idea that, that there has to be a caregiver it was one of those sort of arbitrary uh, turning points. Another might be religious or spiritual convictions. On the medical front, some patients may benefit, for instance, from uh, transfusion therapies or total parenteral nutrition or interventional pain therapies, and yet, Maybe turned away from hospice because they're viewed as uh, too complicated or not fitting into the ideal of what uh, that hospice program wants to provide. And yet these patients still have um, all the same needs that uh, every other more, if you will, simple patients have to complete their lives with dignity and, uh, and in comfort. Those are just some examples then to exemplify the point.
0: What are the benefits of an open-access hospice program?
1: I think the, the benefits are, well, let's go back to the benefits of hospice in the first place. I think that uh, a lot of people have conceived of hospice as simply a place where some kind of a place where you go to die. And uh, certainly the history of hospice in the United States is that's primarily care given at home and over the course of years has evolved to types of programs that recognize the value of living and the important quality of life issues that can be improved upon and optimized uh, during the last phase of life, regardless of how long one's life expectancy is. And so in the sense, meeting the patient's needs where they are and so the main outcome measures or outcomes that uh, the national hospice and palliative organization has promoted over the last number of years is uh, first of all safe and comfortable dying effective uh, bereavement for uh, patients and their and their family members after the death of of the patient lastly self uh, determined life closure that is people to be uh, able to die in a sense on their own terms these benefits then uh, sort of are the universal, universal benefits. And what an open access um, hospice uh, does is provide the means for those outcomes regardless of the person's situation, whether, regardless of the so, person's social or medical circumstances.
0: What are some examples of medical treatments patients may receive with an open access program?
1: The situation uh, that we find ourselves in uh, almost, well, it's really 25 years after the um, development of the Medicare Hospice benefit, and maybe 30, 35 years after hospice sort of arrived on our shores from, from Great Britain, is that medicine, medicine has changed uh, dramatically. Uh, you know, and, and the things we can do to um, qualitatively improve uh, people's lives are vastly uh, changed since 30 years ago, just as surgery and just as uh, medicine in general has. And so, palliative chemotherapy, palliative radiation therapy, the realization that we can provide, uh, for instance, renal dialysis um, uh, in an, in an, uh, with end-stage um, uh, not only renal disease but in other disease states and do this on an outpatient basis and, and provide other, for instance, medical services in, in the way of interventional pain therapies that may greatly improve comfort and quality of life. These are all um, examples, I think, of medical interventions that nobody was even beginning to think of as being possible or reasonable. 10, 15, 20, no less, 20 years ago, and now is uh, really the mainstay of uh, medical treatment for patients with advanced medical illness. And I think that what, what's, I think, very difficult for us to sort of merge in today's world is a regulatory environment and a healthcare benefit that is somehow um, oftentimes misconstrued with what um, is in a, in a, necessarily in a patient's best interest and, and their social circumstances and their ability to understand and choose what's on, in their own um, benefit. Um, And what I mean by this is the the blurring of what is uh, truly a curative intervention versus a disease-modifying intervention versus an intervention that's purely palliative is a spectrum. It's no longer a crisp, clear, discerning difference of one uh, treatment um, than another. And so we have to sort of, I think, rethink our concepts and certainly our healthcare systems to integrate uh, the provision of these types of services and recognize that they may not be serving just one particular purpose.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me today is Dr. Perry Fine discussing open access hospice programs. Dr. Fine, describe the difference between curative and disease-modifying treatments.
1: The definition, I think, of most uh, medical practitioners think is, is a curative intervention is something that will totally eradicate or eliminate a disease process. And, and maybe the most obvious example would be antibiotic therapy uh, uh, for an acute infectious process. You know, you, you, get a, you get an infection, take your antibiotic therapy, the, the infection's gone, and you, move, you go on with your life. Another example would be acute appendicitis. You go in, have your appendectomy, and, you know, voila, life proceeds. When you think about it, there really is very little in medicine that actually conforms to that, those wonderful circumstances where we can actually eradicate disease. Mostly what we do in medicine is intervene in ways to change the trajectory of the disease, to slow the processes, to reduce the burden of illness. Osteoarthritis is certainly a great example, and many, many more. Heart failure, hypertension, diabetes, uh, asthma, and so forth. We you know intervene in ways to modify the way the disease is expressed, and almost all the circumstances all the times when we're doing that, we are in fact reducing the burden of illness and so in a sense, all of the interventions are palliative.
0: How do you draw the line? how does it determine which medical treatments hospice patients receive under open access?
1: Well, I think it you know by virtue of the discussion we've just been having, you can see that it would be uh, somewhat arbitrary, and that if we really sort of draw back to the view that, that hospice is, uh, in a sense, the expression of palliative care in the last phase of life um, where the intent is to help the patient uh, and their family have a maximal quality of life and relieve the, uh, the stress and the burdens associated with loss um, of a loved one and so on, that anything that we do to meet their needs could be, in a sense, perceived um, as palliative in the broadest sense of that definition. Mm-hmm. From a medical intervention standpoint, it would certainly be, um, I think, limited to the view that, that in, this pa- in a given patient circumstance, the goal of the intervention is to reduce signs or symptoms that are burdensome to the individual. As, as we apply them to that individual, then we have to see if, in fact, that, that really is the case.
0: How is eligibility determined with open access?
1: Well, eligibility actually under the Medicare hospice benefit is independent of whether a, a hospice program considers itself to be open access or not. Eligibility is fairly strictly defined by the Medicare hospice benefit as a life expectancy of six months or less if the disease runs its usual course. Now, that last phrase is a little bit ambiguous because usual course is sort of a population-based kind of an idea, whereas in an individual, every disease in any individual runs its own course with great variability.
0: What is the average per diem hospice receives for each patient?
1: Well, first of all, there are four levels of care under the Medicare hospice benefit. And the vast majority of care is um, given at home, and so this is the teen home care um, portion of uh, hospice. And that remuneration rate is currently, on a national basis, um, $135 and some change uh, per day. So it's a per diem-based benefit there's different levels of care. For instance, general inpatient services under the Medicare benefit are reimbursed at uh, $600-some-odd a day. Continuous care, which is another level of care for patients who have need for continuous nursing care based upon the acuity of uh, what's going on, is reimbursed at a a high hourly rate and and converts to about $700-some-odd dollars per day. But the vast majority is home-based care at $135 a day on
0: average. So at $135 a day, how can hospices afford to provide expensive medical treatments such as procrit radiation chemotherapy?
1: Um, that's really the most challenging and interesting, I think, issue that, that hospices really need to face these days because patients and their referring physicians do have expectations that they will be able to get kind of palliative care services that um, any I think any of us would want if they, in fact, prove to be beneficial. And so there are several ways that, that hospice programs have figured out how to do this. First of all, this is one of those examples where size does matter, where the larger programs um, where it can, can um, contract for lower-cost services, for pharmacy benefits, for um, radiation therapy contracts, for dialysis contracts, and so forth, and where economies of scale really do matter. And so I think that what we're seeing is some growth in, in the recognition amongst those programs that really do want to provide these services to try and grow their their census, as most businesses do, can spread their costs over numbers of patients. If you take on one high-cost patient, if you have 10 lower-cost patients to be able to spread those, amortize those costs, then this is, in fact, very doable. And some of the uh, better programs, I think, in this country have figured out that that's exactly what happens. When you stop Closing the doors, if you will, arbitrarily again to uh, patients for all the various reasons I suggested earlier in the discussion, that in fact you do increase your census and not just of high cost patients, but of also those patients that uh, don't cost so much uh, for the provision of services, and so it becomes a larger risk pool. You know, this is not a foreign concept to healthcare. This is, in fact, how almost all, all healthcare um, uh, programs tend to, uh, to be able to manage their costs.
0: Dr. Fine, thank you for joining us today. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.